Welcome to the Writing Westward podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rensing. Today we talk with author Jack Nisbet about his new book, The Dreamer and the Doctor, A Forest Lover and a Physician on the Edge of the Frontier. Thanks for listening. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Each episode features a conversation with an author or scholar of new works that explore the North American West. We hope that our discussions will spark your curiosity to learn more and think differently about the North American West as a region and its peoples, environments, histories, literature, and so forth. You can follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can listen on our website, writingwestward.org, or subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're listed on most major distributors. To learn more about the Red Center, our programming, live-streamed lectures, funding opportunities for research and events, or anything else, find us at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D-Center.byu.edu. You can get more regular updates about the Red Center on Facebook and Twitter as well. Jack Nisbet lives and works with his wife Claire in Spokane, Washington. He's authored several collections of essays that explore the human and natural histories of the Pacific Northwest, as well as award-winning biographies of cartographer David Thompson and naturalist David Douglas, and additional illustrated volumes. In 2018, the Washington State Historical Society presented Nisbet with the Robert Gray Medal for Distinguished and Long-Term Contributions to Pacific Northwest History. The Dreamer and the Doctor, a forest lover and a physician on the edge of the frontier, which we'll talk with him about today, was published in 2018 by Sasquatch Books. The Dreamer and the Doctor relates the biographies of John and Carrie Lieberg and their late 19th and early 20th century experiences in the interior Pacific Northwest, a region that many of us, even Westerners, are largely unfamiliar with. John was a would-be miner, turned botanist, naturalist, scientist, and a government forestry employee. His reports on forest reserves, ecology, and other related fields were impressive in their scope, detail, and eventual influence. Carrie was a surgeon and physician who rose to regional prominence in our profession. She published nationally on obstetrics, became politically active, and even entertained some entrepreneurial dreams. Their lives together offer a fascinating glimpse into an often ignored region, some fascinating stages of frontier development, and an era of exciting scientific discovery. The Dreamer and the Doctor is beautifully written, and Nisbet not only brings these characters to life, but uses their dual biographies to shed light on a number of broader issues relevant to the American West. Jack Nisbet, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Brendan. This book that we'll be talking about today, The Dreamer and the Doctor, is the first biography that we've done on the podcast. And uh, we did talk with Deborah Gwartney and her book about the Whitmans, which was part personal memoir, part biography. But yours is kind of a straight biography, and I'm excited to talk about it a little bit today. Could you offer us maybe a quick 60-second sketch of who John and Carrie Lieberg were? Well, they were a couple, but they had both had previous lives, previous marriages, previous families. He was an immigrant from Sweden who came over here by himself when he was a teenager, and so we don't know very much about him. He apparently doesn't have any formal education past the age of 15. And uh, she's from New England, and her folks moved to Minnesota. And all these things happened built around the fact that the Northern Pacific finished their tracks out west in 1883. Uh, he ends up with a job uh, <laughs> planting trees along the railroad grade. As wind comes breaks, out right? Falls, yeah, right. And he, and he falls in love with the West, as many people do. And then he brings Carrie out as they both simultaneously run away from their previous two families and homestead in North Idaho. Yeah. So by 1884, they they find themselves in the Ponderay Lake region. Correct. Yeah. And then over the course of the next few decades, I mean, really fast, and we'll, we'll go through this in great detail, you know, as we go on. But what do they do there in the region? He comes... John comes because everybody comes to make money mining. That's the story of the West at that time. And he has some geologic knowledge that he has displayed. He's always been a natural history guy, but he's always talking about rocks and time. So he thinks he can, that his knowledge will help him get rich, which of course it won't. <laughs> and over a 
decade he and Carrie fire like 30 claims in this little isolated drainage, which is really fun to go explore today south of Lake Ponderay. But he's really a plant lover, and he works his way into this small world of botanical knowledge that is based in around the big universities in New York City and corresponds with them, and the railroad has made it really easy to correspond back and forth. Carrie is a licensed physician, and even though John says that she's all with him and she's working on the homestead and she's raising this child, a young troubled child that they have, she's actually has a practice in uh, three different towns mm-hmm. between Spokane and North Idaho. And uh, John is much better documented because of his letters, but Carrie certainly had an amazing life at a time when there weren't any women physicians around. There was one other woman physician in Spokane, and they shared an office for a little while. But she's at the forefront of a lot of women's rights and medical uh, pioneering attributes that they really want to chase. They really want to chase them. So you get this uh, high level of ambition in both of them. I find it really interesting. They seem like very unique characters. These aren't the average people that we generally think of when we think of late 19th century Western frontiers. I go back and forth on that. I mean, there is a really high level of natural history knowledge uh, in the general public at that time, and John shares that. He, there's a big, there's a really high level of mining knowledge, prospecting knowledge, and John shares that. There's a really high level of physical ability where you can walk 30 miles a day for day after day after day, and he shares that. Um, there are a lot of women who are starting to rise and want to get the boat and want to have jobs, and, and Carrie's in the middle of that. So I think that they're that you could say they're more emblematic of their mm-hmm. times. They seem unbelievably unique to me when I started in on it, but yet they have other people that are their peers. And that's often what we find as we study history, things that seem incredibly exotic to us today we find out were um, not quite so exotic then, which tells us very a lot about so. tells us a lot about the past, right? Yes, very much so. And that's why that's why I like to do it. Um in the other other people in times I have written about, which is more around the period of contact. The first thing that everybody says is, oh, man, that guy was so tough. How did he do all that stuff? Everybody did that stuff. <laughs> Maybe we're just thing? really not tough. <laughs> <laughs> you're just one of many. Yeah. And you're just doing what you can do. Well, how did you happen upon these two people's biographies? Where did you find the Liebergs? They are not unknown. John published a lot of mm-hmm. seminal forest reserve survey uh, reports for the government, for the USGS, and they are in the archives. They're on the line. You can read them. Uh, I got onto them maybe 20 years ago uh, when a fire ecologist and silviculturalist and biologist that I hung around with just doing what I do said, you should look at these people. But more to the point, there was a bunch of women in North Idaho who knew something about caring, not a lot. And, and uh, it took me a long time to realize that they were a couple, that they were on this journey together, and that they overlapped back and forth with what they were doing. And that, that really intrigued me. I mean, a lot of things have to fall right to write a book about somebody. And I really wanted to write about a couple. Uh, I really wanted to show that kind of interaction. And I really wanted to connect it back uh, to the tribes in time. And they both somehow managed to do that. I'm sure you have a long list of topics uh, of in, intriguing things you've heard that you might decide to write a book on, but you're looking to dedicate a number of years of your life to writing a book. So you have to find a story that's worth telling. Uh, you have to find a story that is tellable, that has sources. And did you kind of find that marriage of both source material and compelling narrative well, mostly my list is reasons not to write a book about somebody. But my <laughs> wife and I work together, and she is very circumspect. And um, She didn't want to write a book about John and Carrie for a long time because she didn't think they were funny enough. Hmm. And then we found a whole bunch of letters that John had written, one pile to a remarkable woman at the New York Botanic, what is now the New York Botanic Garden. Elizabeth Britton, right? Yeah, Elizabeth Britton, amazing person. So where did you find those this cache of letters at? It's, it's just filed in the New York Botanic Garden. It's oh. easy to find because she was a major force in botany, and her correspondence covers boxes and boxes and boxes, and under L, there's Lieber. But the trick is is that in dozens of letters of John's, 
there are occasional letters from Carrie. Mm-hmm. And that is, we would know nothing about Carrie Lieberg if it wasn't for Elizabeth Bert- Britton, because she just filed them in there and they're, they're just mixed. And Carrie's letters are often far more interesting than John's, although John's are fascinating. Carrie's are really different. She is a very different personality than John. She says different things. I think your wife's right. I wouldn't characterize either of them as necessarily funny, <laughs> but they have very strong personalities, though, that really come out in some of the excerpts of these letters. Yes. Did this Britain collection then have the onion skin copies of what she wrote to the Liebergs? No. So we don't have return letters for the ones in the, the, when he was working for the Department of Agriculture and the USGS, the Geologic Survey. There are some carbons on that. I mean, they were at the forefront of everything. Like typewriters are getting to come into common use. And when he starts, it's all handwritten and you don't get a lot of returns and you don't get any copies. Then typewriters get invented and there are all these carbons floating around everywhere. So, uh, there's a break point where you can see both sides of the conversation. Of course, that adds a lot to it. Hmm. Well, tell us about this uh, region, about the geography of the Ponderay Lake Coeur d'Alene region. I know for many people it is kind of this black hole uh, in the <laughs> upper Pacific Northwest. It's a difficult place to get to. That upper spine of Idaho doesn't get a north-south highway until well into the 20th century, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. It's it's rough country. And that's why I get to make my living here. Is I, <laughs> I sort of work in an area between Edmonton, Alberta, and Boise, and then west to the Cascades. And I came into it as fur trade country where Canadian fur traders are coming down into that area. Uh, specifically, the first one was David Thompson who yeah. wrote about it. And then David Douglas, the great naturalist, the Douglas fur trees are named after. He works his way up into it really well. And I wrote a couple books about him. But, um, as they come into it, it becomes clear. I'm, I'm interested in the landscape, and it is this slice of interior rainforest that today is revered among botanists and mushroom hunters and bryologists looking at mosses and lichens because it's wet and has all these plants that appear on the coast and then re- disappear and then reappear in this little slice of interior rainforest. It goes far up into British Columbia. Mm-hmm. And by chance, that's where Lieberg works. And he figured it out and sees all these disjunct plants like uh, Pacific dogwood or red flowering currant and goes wild with it and really makes some hay with it. It's, it's really interesting to see him understand what we think of as standard natural history stories that were pieced together in the late 20th century, like ice age floods or disjunct plants or how Miocene geology works. He pieces them together in the late 1800s when he's making it all up. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's all intuitive to him. He has a great intuitive feel for the landscape, which is what attracts me to him. Well, let me quote you here. Here's one thing that you wrote that kind of <clears throat> brings this out about Lieberg is becoming somewhat of a surprising expert in this. You write, Lieberg was not trained in any specific field and his theories could leap from spot on to shaky within the space of a sentence. And maybe that's how people would describe my writing as well. We'll see. Um, <laughs> uh, you continue. Yet he understands the deep underlying connections in the landscape, noting that geological considerations and deductions are not to be ignored in determining the causes that govern plant distribution and growth. And that's you actually quoting him. And then you yeah. conclude, the breadth of his curiosity provided a starting point not only for more than a decade of his own government surveys, but also for the more comprehensive geographical investigations of the 20th century. He is a fascinating kind of not necessarily jack of all trades, but one of these uh, figures that we have in the natural sciences of the 19th century, people without training who have just a natural curiosity and powers of observation that seem to be somewhat out of place, and they seem to be operating well beyond their training. But we see this in a lot of these individuals, don't we, in that world in which he's inhabiting? Again, it's he, he is always talking about relying on local knowledge, and he has lived in this place in, in the mountains of North Idaho for long enough. He's really good at those mountains, and as long as he's there, and as long as he has local people to talk to, he is terrific. Mm-hmm. And the Direct analogy is the tribal people who are all around him, who have lived there for thousands of years, who, who can have 
he, he gradually learns how much they have to teach him. And when he's out in the field, for instance, and meets women digging roots and he's trying to figure out what they're digging, they know what they're digging. And botan- botanists are they've still not caught up with a lot of the roots that the plateau people were utilizing on a regular basis for a long time and still are. So he's in the middle of all that. And what's ironic is, is that he, he, he had two qualities. He could he could travel fast and effectively and keep good lists. And then he could write a report about them. So as he started doing these forest reserve reports where he included all different aspects like climatology and fire surveys and grazing and as well as a plant list and geology, as well as the timber report that he's supposed to be doing, how many board feet. Can yeah, what he was actually hired to do, right? <laughs> yeah, right. That's what they're supposed to do. So he does all the ones from the Salmon River north to the border, which is a lot, the Bitterroot, the Clearwater, mm-hmm. the Coeur Lane, the St. Joe, the Priest, all these really important forests. They cart, they, the USGS keeps sending him further and further afield. So he's doing them in the gold country in California. He's doing them in the mountains above Los Angeles. He's doing them in the San Francisco's in Arizona. He's doing them in the little belts in Glacier Park and Yellowstone Park. He, they send him everywhere. And the further he gets away, the less his local knowledge works and actually the less interesting the reports become. But he still has local knowledge. He still gets local guides. So you, he understands it. One person can't know everything, which, again, is a tribal tenet. You have to share the knowledge around. Hmm. I think at one point you even cite um, the director, at, not at the USGS, at the USDA, I think, who, when he was first transferred over to do some of these timber reports, and he warned him, saying, you know, don't, like, write the report that you're supposed to write. Don't go too far afield because he knew that Lieberg was going to want to be collecting plants and doing his botany. But those are the very things that make his report so great now. The fact that he did talk about all of these other things, kind of the more holistic picture of the region, right? That's what reads well now is looking at the entire picture. Exactly. Yeah. And what we would call ecology, really. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he did a plant survey in Eastern Washington. That was his first real job and kept a journal. And you look at that journal and go, wow, this is the first time that somebody's been out and isn't just listing plants out. They're, they're actually looking at how they work with the, how the soils look and they're talking to ranchers and they're looking at the cattle and he's doing everything. He can't stop his mind. His mind is really overly busy. And you have that again, that's what we want for today. So is this somewhat unique among botanists that he wasn't just collecting and labeling and listing plants, but he's then asking the questions, you know, well, why is it that this species is growing on the north slope of this one hill and not on other slopes? Was he one of the few that was asking kind of the bigger ecological questions? I think the way we'd look at that now is we would, you know, now that Andrea Wolf's book about von Humboldt has sort of brought him back into the floor, you say, okay, Alexander von Humboldt went to South America and he saw these plant associations and how they changed with elevation and weather and aspect in the way that you're describing. And then there was a man named C. Hart Marion who was working in Washington and Lieberg met him, who starts trying to do plant associations down in Arizona. And then Lieberg starts trying to do that up in the northern Rockies and the Intermountain West and realizes you can't do it. It's too hard. The species are mixed up. The Mm -hmm. zones are not as clear. And so it's a direct lineage for me uh, of looking, you know, how do you start figuring this out? If you go in a forest service office anywhere in the United States today, they have this big, thick binder of associated plants and habitat types. And Lieberg is starting, he's the beginning of that book and how it works and then how you can translate that into forest types and tree species. And again, board feet in the long run. Mm-hmm. Like that's what he's being paid to do. Um, this is the exactly. Yeah. That's what he's being paid to do. But they, they, he drives them crazy because he does so <laughs> much other things. And his boss at the USDS, who was, again, here's another thing that's ironic is Lieberg is in his 40s when he's doing all this. He's had all these other laws. His boss at the USDA Frederick Coville becomes first head of the National Herbarium. He's 25, and he encourages Lieberg and mentors him to, okay, put this in the report, then publish this as a National Geographic article, publish this in the American Forestry Magazine. And and, and Lieberg has all these publications thanks to Coville, which, again, is thanks to Elizabeth Britton for mentoring him around and making these connections for him. So he can seem like a scholar. 
when he's just a Swedish immigrant kid who has yeah. no formal training. Because very early on, so when he first arrives there uh, in the Pondere region, he starts um, c- collecting mosses. He said he was filling up his bags with mosses, and then he makes this connection with Elizabeth Britton and starts sending her things. And she, yeah, through this correspondence, we find that she kind of trains him in, or gives him some of that little bit, the formal training that he was lacking in how do you do botany, um, which is something he just had a natural <clears throat> fascination with. But so you, you say then, then Colville then taught him the practicality of how to play the game of doing government work where you're being, I mean, the USDA is looking at timber as, um, as a crop, right? To, to, to harvest. And so he had to play the game by giving them the board feet that they needed. Uh, but, uh, Colville then also encouraged him to do these other publications, still do what you're interested in and the broader ecological questions. And, and he, and some of that ends up in his reports. But then as you say, in national geographic articles or other things as well. It goes around, yeah. I mean, the the world that he is entering is the world that, again, in our minds today is Teddy Roosevelt mm-hmm. and Gifford Pinchot and the National Forest and the Big Burn in North Idaho. Well, Lieberg predates that by two decades. And yeah. Gifford Pinchot publishes an influential article in National Geographic in 1900 about fire. Well, he, his syntax and the words that he is using to describe careless fire and the complexities of fire – the syntax and the language is the same that Lieber's been writing in letters to Britain for years, starting in the 18, mid 1880s. And then when the big burn happens, you know, our, our, uh, sense is, oh, it all just comes out of, you know, this is where everything started. It's not where everything started. As you say, it's a much longer, more complex pro- process. And that's why Lieber's so attractive to me, I guess, is he's into the nuance of how things work. Whereas if you're working for the Forest Service and you're cutting timber and, you have to say how many board feet you can get off a forest. Nuance drops out pretty fast when you're yeah. doing it. Well, it's fascinating that he predates so much of this uh, environmental science that then develops, uh, you know, after, yeah, 15 or 20 years after he's been doing it. It's fascinating to think, you know, counterfactually, if uh, Lieberg had made these government connections 20 years earlier, um, you know, how much how much sooner some of the scientific management of forests and kind of the development of forestry as a academic discipline would have developed because he was doing it all kind of before it developed as a professionalized discipline. I, I guess my position is he did have influence like he um, Gifford Pinchot uh, read, read his, his reports. Yeah. Letters to Gifford Pinchot and then Gifford Pinchot comes out to Priest Lake to meet him and. Uh, Pinchot's a very interesting man in his own right, but he is taught European-style forestry. He goes to forestry school in France and tries to – he and several other people from the Ivy League schools are trying to institute that in the U.S. And Lieberg writes, look, you can't do that in the West. It doesn't – it won't fact function like that. This is different. You have to use local knowledge. You can't just pass laws in the United States and expect people in the West to even understand that, much less follow them. So – it, it, to read his letters is to recapitulate these, many of the arguments that we're going through now about public land management that are totally fascinating that we have never resolved, of course, and need to put some more nuance in and, and try to figure out a different way to frame the conversation. And I, again, I guess my position is Lieber gives us a way to do that. I think one of the things that I found most valuable about his approach, and as you already mentioned, is the sensitivity to place, to this, to this nuance, specificity of place. Uh, I, mean, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest uh, in Bellingham and thought I had a good understanding of, of the region. It was wet east of the Cascades. And then we used, to, we used to go on vacations up to Winthrop, Washington as a kid. And I always remember going up over Rainy Pass on the North Cascade Highway. And once you hit east of a certain line, uh, the amount of undergrowth disappears. It's drier forests. And I was like, oh, so this is eastern Washington. It's drier. And I failed to realize that you go a little bit farther east, and there's this little pocket, as you already mentioned, of interior rainforest. Um, the the West is just such a varied place that uh, Lieberg really I think, exemplifies this sensitivity to understanding uh, very specific places because they need to be dealt with very differently, which, as you said, maybe the East didn't didn't understand quite as well. 
it's hard. It's hard to understand the geography of the Intermountain West unless you're in it and out of it. And then, as you say, every time you go to a new place, it looks different. He has a great line for the area that you're talking about where he, uh, he gets up, he climbs Mount Stewart in 1893 and says, it looks like there's a battle going on between this wet, really rich flora and then the dry, arid, warm flora. Uh, flora coming in from the east and it looks like the dry is winning right now uh-huh. and then he explains why Mount Stewart sticks out from the Cascades and its position and its aspect are the reason and he, he I mean he writes an article about climate change in National Geographic in 1899 describing how it looks to him like it's getting hotter and drier in the west and that he can mark that by showing different species of trees that are dropping out in high elevations and Ones from lower elevations are coming up and taking over. Very wow. much the conversation we're hearing today, but he he would not be surprised at anything that's going on, and he would especially not be surprised at how we have speeded the whole process up. He describes fire in the same way. He understands tribes are setting fire. He understands there's a fire regime, but with uh, the Mullen Road and with the railroad, it's speeded everything up so fast, and then with careless fires from prospectors, it just exponentially speeded it up, that's when you get into trouble. And and that he's very good at describing that. And again, it can tamp down these really heated conversations we have now in the West about how to deal with fire, which, of course, everybody is afraid of now. He understands it's not something to fear, it's something to think about. Well, let's get back on the ground. Um, you mentioned that you have traipsed around a bit around the Ponderay region and I think it's the North Clark Fork is where he had some of his mining prospects. But I think that, you know, his sensitivity to all of this is because uh, he wasn't just living in the landscape, but he was uh, hacking trails through, you know, the dense forest to make mining claims. And he had this closeness to and lived experience with the landscape that many of us as urban or suburban dwellers don't have. Um, what What is it like uh you know, hiking around these dense forests. Uh, what kind of uh, ex- experience is that? So, so my method with all my writing is just to to get some original journals and go to the same place the same week of the year. Whoever, whether it's a woman homesteader or you know a fur trader or John Lieber, and just see what it's like. And and it, the hardest thing for me to understand about this. Lieberg material is I can I can go to all these places where he went and and he'll have a plant list and I'll see plants that he saw or see trees that he saw I go wow it's just like it was it's not just like it was when he was there when he was here uh, he was traveling mostly on tribal trails that were actually pretty open the tribes are burning he describes the Nez Perce and the Coeur d'Alene reservation as open ponderosa pond beautifully managed he really liked looking at them. When he gets into other drainages where there has been a gold strike, there'll be prospectors who have wormed their way up every little creek trying to do plaster and it'll, and, and set careless fires or purposeful fires to burn off rock outcrops so they can see the rocks. That's the whole deal if you're a prospector and it makes this huge mess. And he, he describes that and, and how it's very hard to travel through that. Well, today when I travel, often I'm on uh, logging roads or closed logging roads or closed mining roads. I mean, it's the West, right? There's no place, there's no place where everybody, some people haven't been, but it's how they have evolved over time. Sometimes it's easy to get around and sometimes it's very hard to get around. Sometimes there's fire and there's smoke in the air and sometimes there's not. And, and to try to translate that back into his time is kind of the trick of it. Because of course, you know, as with human interaction, the, I mean, he, even he's, he's talking about invasive species in the 1890s, you know, so, so the, the biota of the region changes as fires move through as we start managing the land. So it is probably difficult to find a landscape that really exactly matches the landscape he saw. And the landscape he saw was probably already different than what it had been even a few years earlier. And he, he acknowledges that he's well aware of that he collects the first sample of cheat grass in the continental United States in eastern Washington. Oh, wow. That's landmark stuff if you live out west and think about grasses and fires. That, I mean, that's the driver of all these, of many of the fires in the Great Basin. And, and that's the, what a good portion of our plant and wildlife science department here is uh, studying is yes, cheat grass. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. 
So you read something like that or you read something about uh, a letter that he writes to Coville saying, man, there's this there's this Russian thistle down in the Boise Basin and it's headed this way and we are not going to be able to stop it. It's going to take over. You know, he is seeing the future. A lot of what he's doing is seeing the future and not freaking out about it. He's just saying we're going to have to deal with it and it's going to change because that's the nature of habitat. That's the nature of forests. They are dynamic entities that never stay the same. That is the nature of people. These tribes change. The, the settlers change. And that's one, again, that's something about Leeberg that's very attractive to me. If I was to pick a place in the United States where I was going to try to find uh, a landscape that was, I don't want to call it pristine because that's implying I'm imposing a lot of cultural expectations on it, but this interior Northwest, I think, is where I would go to find a place that's been the least disturbed by human activity. Uh, everybody thinks that someplace slightly further away is more pristine than where they are. But uh, when Leeberg was in the Coeur d'Alene and the St. Joe and the St. Mary's, and especially, I would say, in the Bitterroot and the Clearwater, uh, that was one forest reserve that he surveyed, like from the Montana side up to the Bitterroot Divide and down into the Clearwater, which is a massive place and is still all forest. There are pockets within those areas, uh, much of it's still wilderness area, that look very much like he describes. Yes, they look very much like he describes. The floors changed a little bit. Something like uh, white bark pines are not as common because of global warming, uh, and and uh, white pine blisteros, things like that, that he did not see. But yeah, uh, you can find uh, the tree that he liked the most was this alpine larch, which isn't a very common tree with a very restricted range. They're still up there. Uh, you get down into the divides and you can see these disjunct coastal plants that he describes. Um, and you can see people messing with it, just like he describes people messing with it. So, and you can, you can see tribal presence. Uh, he's up on the Bitterroot Divide and sees a mixed camp of Shoshone, Salish, and Nez Perce, which is three different language families. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of remarkable. And he trades for plants with them. And you can go up there and see those same people up there now, same pants. So I, that's what I love is, is, I, I, again, you can't use the word pristine, but you can still go to the places where he went, and it is still really fun to go there. There's no question about that. So as he's writing these reports, what are some of the forest management policies that he that he's advocating? He's, uh, he's a multi-use guy, for sure. He wants the prospectors to have a chance to mine. He wants to take timber off, but he wants to do it in a controlled way. He spends a lot of time talking about the resiliency of the forest, which is a word that foresters use a lot today. And he says you have to give it a chance to be resilient. And, and um, that means not being so rapacious. And so he, after 15 years of doing these things, he gets a job with the government. It's like his dream. He's he, One way to think about it is he is the summer seasonal with the government for years, and then he gets a full-time job, and he's the ranger in the, what is now the Clearwater National Forest, and he lasts six months and quits because he can't handle the bureaucracy and the, the lack of funding that would allow him to go out and do what he needs to do and to get the help that he needs to in order to patrol and control and manage everything he wants to do. He's just put out on this vast landscape with no resources at all, and that drives him crazy. Well, that's the lament of many Forest Service people or BLM people that I know today. Yeah. And he, he, uh, he, he resigns a number of times, but they always hire him back. <laughs> but this time, yes, that is correct. He resigns a lot and he gets his job back. He's a salty guy. And, and again, that's something that's very attractive. About. He makes bad decisions and does weird things a lot. Again, yeah. if you're a writer, you're looking for that kind of saltiness. Yeah. And, well, in so many ways, he seems to have all the right answers or a lot of the answers that we're finally coming around to now, which just seems too good to be true. Are there things that you think he really got wrong or, I mean, I, him and his wife, and actually I want to, we need to transition over to Carrie, but um, they had some, uh, some medical ideas that they published and some things that we know are, you know, not scientifically accurate now. But in terms of forest management ideas, is there anything you think he was way off on? Uh, he wanted to introduce angora goats into the gitter, which might not be a great idea. He's a little more manage heavy than we would think is right today. But in general, the idea that you approach a landscape with a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience and then use your intuition to decide how to management, 
that reads well today. And I think that's what he would have done in the long run. So, yes, it, it, does he have answers to everything? No. He understands that it's too complicated to really figure out. And what some of the things that he says that are my favorites are, you know, he says, well, look, if you have a really hot fire and it sterilizes the soil and these dog hair, lodgepole pine or Douglas fir come back where it was something like white pine or large, it might take generations for it to, to ever get out of that cycle. And we're in the cycle now of dog hair and fire and dog hair and fire and uh, insects and all the different things that can mess up a forest by look. So, so he he would understand that you don't fix that just by snapping your fingers or by cutting down all the deadfall. It just doesn't work like that. And and that's a lesson that patience is a lesson that he was trying to get across. So even if he didn't have all the right answers, his approach seems to be the right approach. I think his approach yeah. is he, there's a lot to learn from his approach. And I've done talks about him two different. Uh, forestry staffs and that kind of thing, BLM staffs, fishing game staffs, because he's fun and, and, and he's dealing with the same issues they are. And, you know, it's tough to be an agency person today trying to deal with these issues. And he makes it seem like it's possible. Well, let's uh, transition over to Carrie. As you noted, you don't have as many records to work off of to be able to tell her story. But what you do tell about her life is fascinating and makes me wish that we had had so much more. One of the first things that really struck me was, I mean, she's a licensed physician. She gets a job as uh, the division surgeon for, uh, is it the great, not the, 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 the North, Northern, Pacific. Northern Pacific Railroad, which is a, a, a rare feat. To, to it's be, the only feat. This is the only one that she does. Yeah. So she obviously uh, is a highly uh, skilled practitioner of medicine. One of the early stories you, a lot of the stories you tell of her are of these moments of crisis that she faces as a doctor of trying to save people's lives, of trying to help uh, women in childbirth. And there's some very uh, difficult uh, stories, but you say that she talks a little bit about being weighed down kind of by the terror of, of the responsibility of holding people's lives in her hands. But what does this tell us about her personality? I think that she, so I've read Doctor writing my whole life. I have always liked it. Um, Franz Kafka and Chekhov and Queen Carlos Williams and everybody <laughs> like that. I, I love it. And there's a, uh, there's a British neurosurgeon who I've been reading lately named William Marsh. And he has, uh, he has a great book called Do No Harm. And, and in it, he spends a lot of time harming people, like touching one point in their brain that has catastrophic consequences. But when Carrie was practicing medicine, she had a very high failure rate, and that's just the way it was. She didn't have a lot. You know, she had a bag of tools that included booze and laudanum and Horlick's malted milk and a, you know, a long set of forceps. There wasn't much else in it that she could do, and that weighed on her, I think, in part because a lot of the cases that she wrote up, all of the cases that she wrote up involved women and childbirth. That was her specialty. She wanted to be a family doctor. There were a lot of women having consecutive kids, lots of them, every year and a half for their whole lives and then dying in childbirth eventually because that's how it worked. And the conditions were really unsanitary and their husband was drinking the paycheck away or gambling. And and these all became women's rights issues for a good reason. And the movement was strong when she was coming up. And Idaho, against all odds, there was four Rocky Mountain states that passed women's suffrage in 1896. It was way ahead of every other state in the Union except Massachusetts and the East. They were, there was five states in the Union that had suffrage in the 1890s when Idaho had it. So there was, there was reasons behind everything that she did. And one of the real coming ways to deal with it was to have what they called lying-in hospitals, where if you had trouble with your pregnancy, you could maybe go to a hospital and get some care instead of dying on the dirt floor of your homestead cabin. And Carrie was so on top of all that. She was back in Chicago looking at their lying in hospitals and trying to set one up in Spokane. She was look, she was designing a, uh, some kind of medical spa on her homestead and on the lake. She was um, dealing with a, a woman doctor in Spokane that had the same kinds of ideas and the records for all of them tend to disappear. It's, and you, you, you can feel the weight that she gets from all of that in her letters. Very dark, 
very, especially compared to John, who's totally romantic about everything, saying everything's going to be great no matter what. Carrie is saying, you know, that there's a lot of human misery out there, and I'm in the middle of it. And I guess the way that I read it, uh, what really brought it home for me is the doctor that she dealt with in Spokane named Mary Latham. If you look her up on the Internet, all you read is these ridiculous horror stories of how she lost it, uh, burned down a house and ended up spending time in a penitentiary in Walla Walla later in her life. That's all that it shows, whereas actually she spent a lot of time as a revered medical doctor for women's issues in Spokane. But I, there's a price to pay for being a pioneer in that. And Mary Latham certainly paid it. And you get the feeling from her letters that Carrie was paying it as well. Hmm. Here's what you, you quote her writing to Elizabeth Britton. She says, I think none but a physician can realize so keenly the folly, weakness, and utter contemptibility of the great majority of the human race. If one could but reform the world and take from it a portion of its needless misery. And that could be a quote from the William Marsh book that I was just talking mm-hmm. about, Do No Harm, or a quote from William Carlos Williams or Anton Chekhov, for that matter. They, their syntax and their feelings were very similar. I mean, you get involved in one of these really messy, bloody death situations where both the child and the mother die. You can't come home and be romantic about that. And here's the difference between those guys and Carrie, the guys that we, that, you know, that I grew up with necessarily. They are men. They do not understand what it's like to have a kid and go through it. And Carrie had a kid who had problems, who had mental problems, who was a tough child to raise. And she was doing all this while raising that child. It's just unbelievable. It makes her, it puts her in a different category than any writing doctor and of John Lieberg, who is never at home after all because he's outside all the time. Yeah, she's so, doing all this on her own, sometimes yeah. very isolated at their ranch on the south yes. end of the lake. Yes, um, and and it really gives you a different perspective. She has a doctor's office in Hope, Idaho, on the northern Pacific line, and her territory goes from Montana all the way to the Tri-Cities where the snake meets the Columbia. And there's a photographer for the northern Pacific who takes these great photographs, and he takes a photograph in Hope, and it's all men standing there by the tracks and carries offices with like two buildings down. From this photograph, it's astonishing. You just don't even know what to make of it, except that's what the woman's movement has been about since the 1860s, and she is in the middle of it. She is at a time when they're just starting to win some small victories, like the Sloan had to wash our hands kind of victories, and they make a huge difference in the lives of these women who, again, family practice is the key to all of it. You have to think of children and childbirth. And getting old and caring for your mother, you have to think of those all of a piece, just like John is thinking of the landscape all of a piece. So do you think that her profession specifically is really what informed her involvement in in women's suffrage? I mean, she, and she runs for uh, the House of Representatives at one point, but do you think that's really what's fueling her, oh, uh, her, her passion? Again, we have no idea. We, I, have, I mean, I'm still yeah. looking. I have yet to find anything about her campaign, but certainly that's what it was about. Absolutely, that was about. And here's the reason we know is, um, so uh, 1898 is the first year women can run for office in Idaho. Three women from three different political parties get elected to be state representatives that year. One of them is a close neighbor uh, within a few miles of Carrie's homestead, and she's a young woman in her late 20s. She goes down to Boise and against all odds, forms a coalition of parties and passes an anti-gambling bill. That is a huge woman's issue because the guys are gambling away the paycheck. And and you can't under, that seems silly now. It's hard to understand now, but it was a big deal. Then in 1900, this woman wouldn't think of running for office again because you didn't do that. Being a state rep was a little two-year hitch that you served to, to honor your community. So Carrie is the one that runs for her seat. And again, that year there was a backlash against women. No women get elected, and no women get elected for quite a while after that because history is not linear, and Carrie was just behind the curve in that. But she doesn't seem to be the kind of personality who could get a coalition together to pass, say, a hygiene bill or mm-hmm. an anti-booze bill or something like that. That's not her nature. Her nature was to be a family practice physician and to try to save lives if she could. And so she, she was right where she needed to be in my mind. What do you think that Carrie's life tells us about 
women's experiences more broadly in the late 1800s, early 1900s, in the especially kind of in these really frontier regions of the West? I think it tells us just what John's do is we have never dealt with public land management in John's point of view, and we have never dealt with public health issues in Carrie's point of view. It's she's facing all the same issues that we are today, and none of them have really been resolved to satisfaction to anybody's satisfaction. So again, if I'm going around to a uh, teaching hospital for medic for doctors, and I can go talk to students and just lay out her story, I think it can help defuse this really overheated conversation we have and just go back to, well, you know, these, this seems like we should be able to help people who need medical attention. It's that simple. And Carrie is willing to get on a railroad hand car and pump her way 10 miles to help yeah. some woman in labor. We should be able to be able to do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's another story I had actually tagged maybe talk about. She, her and the husband hand cart themselves 10 miles and, uh, the woman had been in labor for a few days and uh, um, it ends up being a stillborn child and she yeah. has to hand cart herself home uh, kind of with the weight of <clears throat> that experience. Yeah, it's not going to work. But she works for the railroad. Everybody works for the railroad. Everybody yeah. rides the train. So, again, it's not so amazing. If she's working for the railroad, of course she's going to take a hand cart. But, and, of course, the baby's going to die because, the, the, you know, there's a pretty high percentage of, of difficult labors that end up with a stillborn child. So, it, you, you can't make too much of it, but you can't make too little of it either. The fact that she writes it down and the fact that we wouldn't know anything about it unless Elizabeth Britton had decided to file that letter, you know, it gives us a little talking point that we can use for much larger issues. It seems to me that maybe the the lesson you're leaving for us to think about today is we have these two individuals and both of them have a real uh, sensitivity to on-the-ground realities and the reason that they're able to avoid maybe some you know some of the political divisions and unproductive dialogue that we're stuck in today as we're dealing with a lot of the same issues they were um, they seem to avoid that by the fact that they were on the ground getting their hands dirty and in the trenches so to speak whereas so many of us are not I would agree with that. Maybe, we're all armchair quarterbacks on public yeah. lands issues and uh, uh, women's yes. health issues. And because of that, we don't have the sensitivity to actually ask the right questions like it seems they were able to. I think that's I think that's a really good point is that John is a prospector. He's looking at rocks. He's trying to figure it out. He's he's doing timber surveys and he, he's all for it. But you have to understand it and do it with some sense. You have to have some common sense when you're doing the sense. And Carrie would say the same thing about taking care of a pregnant woman who maybe has had a difficult pregnancy last time and doesn't have a good prognosis this time. You have to pay attention and give her a chance to lie in. It's a great phrase, uh, you know, to have some rest and, and have some support around her when she's doing it. And that idea that she was going to start a spa on their homestead, which we know nothing about, that surveyor who surveyed their land just draws it in on his map. Labels it solitaire uh, was the name. The solitaire spa, yeah. That's a great idea. And the fact that it might have been connected up with one that was in Spokane that her friend started that was the same kind of deal. And you could, if you were a battered woman in the city in a bad situation, you could maybe go out to the country and escape for a while. That's the way people think now. And it makes sense. And it, it's still not very well instituted. Well, I won't spoil the rest of their story for people who want to go pick up the book, but they do end up in the Philippines and all, kind of all over the place. There's uh, worldwide tours. There's a lot that goes on kind of outside the Pacific Northwest and some really interesting and, and you know, hard stories um, towards the end of their lives after John dies and with their son Bernard and his mental health issues. And um, But there's, there's a lot more to the story that kind of wraps up quickly at the end of the book. We can just leave that as a teaser perhaps for for listeners. What are you working on, on next? What kind of things uh, do you have in, in store for us? Well, traditionally, I have trouble letting go of projects. And, and um, uh, it was difficult to get all the information from John and Carrie Lieber into one book because it seemed like it was several different stories going on. But it's still their story. But there's still big holes in it. And I haven't been able to stop myself from sort of looking into some of those holes. Um, I can be patient about finding the next project, and, and I, I know that one, you know, I have several that I'm looking at, but none of them has had all the elements break 
in the way that I want them to, where somebody is funny and somebody does something that resonates with today. You know, there's there's uh, tribes involved, there's women involved, all those kinds of things are hard to put together. So I'm still fooling around with the Leibovitz on a lot of levels, trying to find out more about Carrie's time uh, in the Oregon Cascades, and uh, she had a woman doctor friend down there as well, who we have some records about. Uh, we have uh, the person that lives on their homestead down there, I'm in touch with them. Uh, John has a big batch of letters that got given to Gifford Penn show that have never been located. I like to find those. So, um, and there's a lot of strong visuals with it. So sometimes uh, my wife and I curate a museum exhibit, say, and try to think about it as an illustrated visual uh, project in the, because a lot of people don't read, but they can understand what a pair of long forceps look like. Um, so I'm not sure. I, I'm more interested in writing, but I'm interested in visuals as mm-hmm. well. Well, here's to hoping that someone finds a old trunk in their grandma's attic full of letters or pictures or or things uh, of the Liebergs that will help you kind of tell more of these stories. I don't think it's going to happen, but I never <laughs> stop thinking about it. Yeah, right. Those are the things that keep us up at night, right? Yes, right. Well, I appreciate you taking some time to talk with us today. It was a great book. It was really fun to read. I mean, one of the reviews on the bat, on the jacket says it reads like a novel. And uh, there were moments where I was like, oh, wait, I forgot. This is a, a biography that I'm reading. But, uh, you know, actually based on, I mean, there's not like footnotes per se, but, uh, you know, it's based on actual historical sources. But uh, it's, it was really fun to read and a real fascinating glimpse into not just these two very interesting lives, but that world in which they were living um, in the 1890s early 1900s there in the inland Pacific Northwest. I just loved it. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. Take care, Jack. You too, Brendan. Thanks for listening to this episode. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. You can find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll include a link in the episode description. Besides subscribing to the podcast, you can receive regular updates about upcoming episodes by following on Facebook or Twitter. My name is Brennan Rensink, and I serve here as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, uh, and pretty much everything else. So if you have any praise or critiques, you should probably just send them my way. I'm associate director of the Red Center and an associate professor of history here at Brigham Young University. Feel free to contact me if you have any questions about the podcast, the Red Center, our live-streamed lectures and events, funding opportunities, or anything else. If you have books you think I should consider for an episode, please send them my way. One last plug, I'm also the project manager and general editor of a great digital public history project hosted here at the Red Center called Intermountain Histories. You can check it out by visiting www.intermountainhistories.org or download the free mobile app by searching Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. There you can read carefully curated histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. In any case, thanks again for listening to the episode. We'll see you next month.